a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 113 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guys say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. This episode is recorded in the world-famous Say the Damn Score studio, a.k.a. my spare bedroom in Burnsville, Minnesota, and mostly because we're not supposed to leave our house here in Minnesota with all of this COVID-19 coronavirus stuff going on. And I just thought I would give a quick update before we get to our guest, Tim Brando of Fox Sports, and just tell you what my situation is, because I know a lot of sportscasters are really hurting right now with a lot of lost work, especially the freelancers out there. And I am in that boat with you. Technically, Minnesota at this point has suspended spring sports until mid-April. I am not hopeful that they are going to end up with a season. I expect that it is going to be totally canceled. And if it turns out different, it will be a pleasant surprise that I will be more than happy to oblige with and broadcast a few spring games in baseball, softball, lacrosse, etc. But I just don't think it's going to happen at this point. Uh, following the news, it doesn't look like this is slowing down anytime in the near future. So I'm going to talk to you as if I will not have any spring work this year, and that will be tough. Most of my sponsors for my streaming platform prepay at the beginning of the year for the whole season, and that means I do have a little bit of money in the bank that I've been carefully budgeting to last me throughout the year, and so I'm not completely up a creek without a paddle, but if this continues to carry on past August, it will start to really be a financial crunch. Also, next year, when I'm selling renewals, there will obviously have to be some kind of credit refund or discount given to the businesses that paid for their spring sports and didn't get them because of this coronavirus. But those are the times. I am fortunate that a part-time job that I have working for Home Depot, I usually work 15 to 20 hours a week just to pay a couple bills. And now they have been deemed a tier one essential retail outlet. I don't know exactly what the official title is, but it means that they're going to stay open even if it's shelter in place or total lockdown just because they sell certain essential supplies. And they have had a hard time getting people to come into work, so I have been able to get extra hours. I haven't had to completely stay at home. I go to work at Home Depot and I come back. That's pretty much the extent of my leaving the house and having anything to do with the outside world. But it is helpful to make a little bit of spare change to help me stay afloat maybe a little bit longer, knowing what's in the bank and 
having to use less of it each month to try to extend that just in case this thing continues to be a problem six months, a year. Who knows? I hope it's not that long. I hope, again, that we are looking at some sort of light at the end of the tunnel by the time we get to the summer, but at this point, who knows? What I do know is that with everybody having to stay at home and social distance, it's been easier to get great guests on this podcast. And and with that in mind, I'm happy to introduce Tim Brando of Fox Sports. Tim, let's just start. Usually I try to keep these podcasts somewhat evergreen, but we are recording this March 18th in the middle of coronavirus, COVID-19 hysteria, and you usually are a big part of the NCAA tournament historically, a lot of college basketball. Where were you and what was happening when you found out that March Madness was canceled? I was calling the last game of the season. <laughs> the last game played, the last basket made uh, on national TV by a, by a player, L.J. Figueroa for St. John's. Uh, halftime of the quarterfinal game, but if you recall on that uh, Thursday afternoon, we were the only one of the Power Six conferences that actually tipped off. But by halftime, uh, a decision was made to cancel not only the game, but the rest of the event. And uh, the moment I got to my television truck, it was a news story. So Bill Hemmer, my friend over at Fox News, was already, he had me in his, in his uh, quick hit, you know, on his, uh, on his phone. And, and he knew I was there. So uh, he sent a car and I was up there talking about what had just happened. And um, I left the next morning and even though my season ended prematurely, mine lasted longer than anyone else's, as it turns out. It was a bizarre week, surreal, and and I think ultimately uh, the right choice was made. But, you know, we can debate for a long time how we got there with regard to the separate decisions that were made by each of the conferences in the wake of what the NBA did. But just for the moment, just to talk about the actual event in the moment, the game itself, the first 20 minutes were really well played and uh, exciting. One one young man, a kid, I'll never forget his name, Jet Canfield, a, a walk-on that had to play for an injured Marcus Zagorowski, came in to replace one of the other players that was a scholarship player and was having some trouble turning the ball over against St. John's press. And this kid was having a, a, a career game. He had only played in six games all year. and. Uh, he had eight points and three assists and, and, and basically put Creighton back in the game. You know, I'm, he'll be one of those kids that years from now, hopefully we'll have the DVD uh, or DVR converted to DVD of it. And he can show his grandkids, Hey, I had this one game at the world's most famous arena. It was never official, but look what I did. <laughs> you know, just those kind of moments that may not be significant. Now will be significant later to young men like what was the feeling like in the arena? What was just the buzz and the reaction? Were there fans there? Oh, yeah. There were 200 okay. fans allotted uh, tickets to each team. Uh, so a total of 400. Plus you had the pet bands and the, um, and the cheerleaders that didn't count against the 200. I think there was a little disappointment uh, because the players were lathered up and they were going at it. They were like, hey, we got to play. Let's give them a show. And you know, anytime you're playing in a, even if it's a, I mean, it's, it's Madison square garden, you know, it's what these kids 
look forward to all season long. And uh, I was excited to see them be playing as well as they were. So, you know, once the game started, we all lose ourselves in the game. I mean, that's the essence of sport. But I won't say that there was uh, – it was, it was disappointment, but I think it was understood shortly after the initial disappointment that this was, this was likely to happen and probably should have happened before the game ever got underway. I mean, we all knew what the score was. I was advised by the producers in the truck that they had already pulled players off the floor in Indianapolis at the Big Ten at the ACC tournament. And of the top conferences, we were the only ones that were still playing. You know, I think I began the game by saying, for now, we play on at Madison Square Garden uh, for the time being. You know, that was our tone. Uh, so, in a sense, I guess I had uh, given a disclaimer that we may not finish this game, and in fact, we didn't. Uh, there was some level of disappointment, yes, that once the game started, that, gosh, if you're going to start it, why wouldn't you finish it? But it wouldn't obviously have mattered because by the time, literally, I got to our television trucks and the phones were ringing, it was shortly after that, Kansas and Duke, I believe both had suggested that even if there were an NCAA tournament, uh, they would not be participating. The NCAA had not as yet called off the tournament. You know, the the feeling at the time of the tip-off was, okay, um, yes, the NBA has called off its season, but the NCAA tournament is still on only with limited access, which was exactly what we were calling. We were calling a conference tournament game uh, with a limited access for only family and for close personal friends and family uh, allowed to, to be uh, given tickets to the event. So, you know, it wasn't official that the NCAA tournament was off when we left the building, though it was only, gosh, a couple of hours later that it became obvious that they were going to have to make the announcement, and they ultimately did. How weird was it broadcasting at Madison Square Garden with 400 people? Well, look, I've uh, I've done my fair share of uh, AAU type atmosphere games, five star camp games with when Howie Garfinkel was alive and only a few people were on site while a, a, a game was being played. You know, when you're as I said, moment you you pour yourself into a game, uh, it is different. You have to establish uh, your own enthusiasm and energy for what you're doing. But our technicians at Fox are really good. Uh, they turn up the microphones uh, on the coaches on, on the floor, so you can hear the, the the squeaking of the tennis shoes on the hardwood. You can hear some of the communication that the players are having on the floor. And with that in mind, and just the fluidity of, of the game of basketball, there's there's a level of energy that is there, uh, and you're reacting to what you're seeing. Strange when you go to a timeout, you look around. But while the ball's in play, while the the ball is in motion and the players are on the floor, uh, it's no different than when the place is packed, which it was uh, the night before when St. John's beat Georgetown to get into the game with Creighton. Before we dive deeper into your career and your path to where you are right now at Fox Sports, just what are you doing with this downtime without any sports or any games to call? Well, I, I have to, I live in my hometown in Shreveport, Louisiana. I've got uh, a wife and, and two kids, and they have grandkids for us. We have a an infant that's uh, not quite 
two months old. We have a two and a half year old boy that is our grandson that lives less than a mile from us in, um, in Shreveport. And we have another daughter that lives in Jackson, Mississippi. Her husband is, uh, one of the, the big time caregivers now at UMC medical center. He is a first year resident there. They have a three and a half year old daughter, uh, Wilma Scarlett that lives uh, in Jackson, which is three hours down the road from us. So we're in constant contact with them and especially with the grandkids are, and, and doing so, keeping our distance, obviously, but whatever we can do to help them, uh, we're doing. As long as this uh, continues to go on, making sure that we, we keep our distance from others, I think I'm going to pour myself into some of the projects that, that I have going on that uh, long-term are important to me, which include uh, putting together a book. I'm a couple of years away from doing it. I've got it I'm just in the outline form of, uh, of putting it together, but, um, I'm, and it's not a book of memoirs, not an autobiography, but it's, it's more of a, what to do, what not to do book, uh, in our, in our profession, which hopefully will help some young guys coming up. Uh, I'm in the early stages of working on that and, um, yeah, I'll get ahead of the curve a little bit with regard to my golf game. Uh, as long as my foursome uh, keeps its level of distance. And, and the way I hit the ball, I'm generally in the woods anyway, off by myself, so I should be okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you were looking into what you're writing for that book and you were going to write about all this craziness with COVID-19 and the coronavirus and canceling sports and a lot of broadcasters in some tough spots, what advice yeah. would you put down? Since that's something that you obviously have well, probably thought about. Yeah. These are uncharted waters, no question about it. There are ways to keep your game sharp, to go back and look at some tape of some old games, and then turning down the TV set and uh, and calling what you're seeing on TV. I mean, that's that's one way if you're a young up-and-coming broadcaster to give yourself some reps and, and hone your skills if that's something that you want to do with your life. More than anything else, though, I think uh, – you know, just keeping your wits about you and remaining patient in an impatient business filled with a bunch of type A's can be very, very frustrating, I'm sure. But well, listen, we're all learning, you know, every one of us at every level. Uh, I've been at this for four decades and have gone through uh, a number of uh, reinventions of myself as a broadcaster. All you need to do is look at my resume to see that there, there are different ways of being successful I do have the time to deal with it and would have had the time whether we had a uh, coronavirus outbreak or not. I mean, I was only a day away from being uh, through with my season. I no longer do the NCAA tournament since leaving CBS and working at Fox. But, you know, I pour myself into college football and college basketball. And this is the time of year where I generally recharge my battery, uh, playing a few pro-ams, which I likely won't because uh, those tournaments are, are, have gone away. And, um, spend some time socially uh, in my hometown and, and spend some time with my friends and my family. I mean, this is that time of year for me to really uh, recharge my battery. But to your point about dealing with unique circumstances in live events, what I went through uh, on that uh, Thursday morning going to Madison Square Garden and just calling a half of basketball and spending the rest of the day with my phone blowing up. And as I said, uh, running by Fox News' uh, location there on the Avenue of the Americas to be with Bill Hemmer 
you become a news story. You, you, you go away from, to some extent, sports, but you, you become part of a news story. And I, that, that, that happened with me in 2008 when I was calling the SEC tournament uh, at the old Georgia Dome in Atlanta, and a tornado ripped through downtown Atlanta. Had to move the we had to we had to move the tournament in the middle of the night from uh, the Georgia Dome over to Georgia Tech, and with limited access for those games, Georgia went on to to win four games in four days and win the SEC tournament that year. They actually did a documentary about it uh, on Thirty for Thirty called Miracle Three. Never have a chance to look at it. They probably will rerun it at some point during this uh, this coronavirus outbreak on any one of the various platforms at ESPN. But I was involved in that, and uh, I was also involved in the college football game at Fox in 2015. Spencer Tillman and I were uh, headed over to the stadium uh, in Stillwater, uh, Boone Pickens Stadium, right in front of the stadium, and some lady uh, that was apparently bipolar going through all kinds of issues ran through the barricades and mowed down three people and killed them just a few hours before the kick. And uh, as we were walking to the game, we had to walk across body bags through uh, barricades that the police had set up over the crime scene and uh, and didn't know whether we were going to do the game or not. Uh, ultimately, the game was on, and we opened the show with an obituary. And I don't know that that's happened to too many people in their broadcasting lives, but it happened to me. Um you have to adjust when you're doing live television, Logan, uh, to whatever the environment is around you. And a lot of times the environment that you cannot control uh, is is going to mitigate some of what you want to try to, 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 to do with your broadcast. But one thing we can't control is the atmosphere that we're broadcasting from. Uh, and on many an occasion, uh, what's going on at that location is part of the story. Sometimes it becomes... Uh, the most important part of the story. And in both cases, back uh, in 2008 in Atlanta at the SEC basketball tournament and at that football game back in 2015 in Stillwater, Oklahoma, that was the case. Yeah, it's really interesting because last week, as all this was happening, I think probably, and I don't know, I don't have any way of confirming this, but I think I probably did the actual last college basketball game of the year. It was a junior college game in Rochester, Minnesota, and they finished the tournament, but they compressed it, the Final Four and the championship game, all in one day. It was really bizarre. Yeah, and I I believe I saw someone uh, was doing a a women's tournament as well that might have been going on and lasted a little bit longer than ours. As I mentioned, I just know that in Division I men's college basketball house, Ours was the last game that was being televised, and uh, and everybody knew it. And to some extent, I think you know what led to the the game being canceled at halftime. You're never going to be able to convince me that part of it wasn't bad optics, that it just didn't look right for the Big East to be the only ones that were still playing. And ultimately, there are probably a number of reasons why that was the case. Uh, unlike the the other conferences, the power conferences that took their players off the floor. You know, the Big East doesn't play football. It's a basketball-only league, 10 Catholic schools and uh, private institutions, and this is their Super Bowl. But I think it also sort of begged the, the, the point, begged the, the issue of why in the world uh, can't the NCAA, as well as these 
institutions that are governed by the conferences and the conference commissioners, why couldn't they have gotten on the phone before these tournaments ever began and come to a consensus decision on what to do? There's just a lack of communication, I think, among the leaders uh, in intercollegiate athletics. And I, I, I spoke to that briefly. I didn't get into depth on it. I just spoke to it in summation when uh, our studio people asked for us to put a ribbon on what we had just witnessed, what we had just seen at the start of the football season or whatever. We've got a lot of time, I think, uh, to, to ponder some of the changes that really need to be made. And I don't know of uh, any part of our sports culture that needs more changing than than intercollegiate athletics, uh, both in college football and college basketball. A lot of changes need to be made. And uh, we need someone that has, I think, um, not only a purview from 30,000 feet from a distance, if you will, but someone that has the authority and the autonomy uh, to say, hey, uh, you guys are concerned only about your part of the country, your constituents, but I'm concerned about the way the entire product looks. And right now, this doesn't look very good. You guys need to do this, this, or that. And, um, you know, it's a a so-called czar, if you will, uh, for the commissioners to turn to to get some guidance and get some help. It'd have to be someone they trust. They would have to practice. I think the commissioners would some uh, dramatic changes in their view of their own power and control to do it. But I think it would certainly be in the best interest of the product if, uh, if we did that down the road. Okay. We've talked almost 20 minutes on the coronavirus and all of its aftermath and Usually this is more about the guests and their careers. I thought it was important to dive into that first, but uh, I wanted to shift gears now. You grew up with broadcasting in your blood, starting calling games with your dad at a local radio station at age 14. Was it clear from a really young age what you wanted to do with your life and your career? Yes. I mean, I can't remember not wanting to be a sportscaster on television. Uh, you got to remember, I was born in 1956. TV was the big deal at that time. You know, television was like the Internet. Um, it was that big. It was that new. Uh, and to have a father that was on television almost daily uh, in my hometown uh, had great impact on me. And I spent a lot of my my adolescence, you know, tugging on his coattails. He had a he had a band that toured SAC air bases across the country. My dad, in addition to being a broadcasting pioneer, was also uh, an entertainer. Uh, had a what they called in those days a floor show band that used to, you know, put on quite a show. And uh, I was part of it, as was my older sister at the time. Uh, and uh, you know, I was I, I would get up there and sing with my dad, play the drums with the band, and. Uh, I mean, I was, a, I was an essential part of the show. Uh, so I was in front of people from the time I was five or six years old. And um, that was in the early 60s. And, and so, uh, you know, when the band did break up and um, my dad kind of got away from that end of the business and was no longer in local TV, but had moved to California, uh, he had become a, a writer, a screenplay writer, and was doing some different things. And my, my family did have a... a there was a separation between my mom and dad. I was, um, I was probably 11 uh, about that time. And so I needed to become sort of a regular kid. I had been nothing. <laughs> I had been, 
there had been nothing regular in my adolescence leading up to that time. But I was athletic enough to make the team, be one of the guys, and being a teammate and being a, you know, a decent enough athlete to play all three sports uh, was very helpful to me. But I was also, as you can imagine, a pent-up uh, creative type that, that needed uh, a stage from time to time, and that stage could be uh, in speech or debate, or it could be in uh, uh, singing with the, the choir, which I did all of those things uh, as a youngster. But I felt like I had a really well-rounded uh, background all the way through. But my love of Kurt Gowdy and Jim Simpson and Ray Scott and Jack Buck and um, so many of the other great broadcasters, um, Chris Schinkel, later Keith Jackson, and Jackson was also a great influence on me, as was Gowdy. You know, those those were the people that I really looked up to. And I, my father knew that. And uh, he had gotten into the hotel business and had bought some uh, stock and some interest in some hotels, one in Monroe, Louisiana, uh, which was only 100 miles away. And uh, he decided to take up residence there after having been in California for a while. And some local guys in Monroe knew that my dad was there and just so happened they had they had an opening for a play-by-play guy for high school football uh, at one of the storied high schools uh, in the state, Neville High, in 1971, uh, which I was 14, not quite 15 yet. I was 14 years old in the ninth grade, and uh, I had stopped playing football uh, after an injury, still playing basketball and baseball. They asked my dad if he would like to do the games. My dad took the job only because he could pick the, uh, his booth mate. The guy told him, the owner of the station said, well, whoever you want, uh, Hub, my dad's name was Hub Brando, uh, short for Loyola Hubert Brando. And so I said, okay, well, fine, I'll pick my guy. He had no idea it was going to be his 14-year-old son. But uh, I would get on a Continental Trailways bus in Shreveport on Friday afternoons, got clearance from my principal uh, in middle school at that time, junior high they called it, uh, at Lakeshore Junior High. And we, we, we would go on the bus trip to Monroe. My dad would pick me up there. And then we would go to Neville Tiger Stadium, Neville Heights Stadium. I'd interview the coach and the opposing coach for the pregame show. And my father would do play-by-play in the first half. I'd be the color analyst. And then in the second half, which was always going to be the most exciting, and once I'd gotten my feet wet, so to speak, watching the game, we would switch roles. I would call the game, and my dad would be the analyst. So... <laughs> it was a heck of a way to get started and uh, gave me some wonderful reps and off I went. And I didn't stop doing play-by-play of football all the way through high school. I stayed with it for a couple of years there and then over into East Texas and uh, Longview, Texas. I did it for my junior and senior years, and all the while maintaining uh, you know, my, uh, my somewhat mediocre, but uh, as I get older, much greater high school career in baseball than, <laughs> than people really think. But uh, it was a lot of fun, but something I knew I wanted to do. And uh, I wanted to, obviously, to continue it. So um, through my speech and debate success, and I'd won a number of uh, speech and debate tournaments, uh, I was given a scholarship to Northeast Louisiana University over in Monroe, which is where I'd begun my high school play-by-play, and, uh, and, and went to college there while while working in radio and in TV. I was doing weekend TV as an 18-year-old and also working as a rock jock. So I was never, I was never not in media, and I was never not working even, 
even when I was in school. So, yeah, I, I, I knew that it was either this or paint white lines down the streets of my hometown, Logan. This was <laughs> this was going to be it, no matter what. And I, I've never had a job of any kind that was not uh, in media, not in broadcasting. So I guess maybe in the fifth grade, I was throwing the paper, which is still media, right? I was working exactly. for the paper. So I was still, yeah. So I was... I was doing a paper route in the fifth and sixth grade. That was still media. So I've never, I've never been without a media job of some sort. A couple things I want to follow up on from that answer. You mentioned that you basically used broadcasting and speech and debate as an outlet to release your pent up creativity. Right. I'm assuming you still do that today. What are some examples of releasing that creativity in unique ways in your broadcasts? Well, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I did a, I did a radio show for many years uh, that was nationally syndicated. Uh, the Tim Brando show it was on sporting news radio with the Sirius XM for a period with our cable network televised it in the last couple of years before I left there uh, in 2012 and 13. I've always had strong opinions. I've always been someone that likes to give observations or provoke thought. That comes from my speech and debate background. You know, when I, you parents would talk to me many times about how do you, how do I, how do I get my kid if he wants to be prepared to do what you do? And and I'd say, well, apart from sports, you've got to love the art of communication. You've got to love broadcasting, not just the sport, but you've got to love the communication part of it. And if you don't, you're not going to be very successful. And uh, in debate, no matter the topic, the quest for anyone that's involved in it is to know both sides of the argument and to be able to defeat the opponent, no matter what side of the argument. So the power of persuasion, the power of your voice and the commitment to the way you project your thought on that topic is going to be the difference in winning and losing. That was the part of creativity that I really needed apart from playing ball. And trust me when I tell you, my friends that were part of, the, of debate and speech, that's, that's theater arts. You know, that's more like acting and the, a lot of thespians in that group, thespians. And, and I was one of them. And you don't normally see jocks in that role, in that, in that part of life. So I had a number of different friends, well-rounded, different views of life. Uh, and this was in the seventies. You know, this was a long time ago, more than a generation ago. Uh, and it was fun for me, but it helped me, I think. And I, and I still practice a lot of, of, um, the teachings I got from that in terms of my abilities to communicate and debate doesn't have to be an argument. I think too often today, that's what it becomes. It becomes a shouting match. It doesn't need to be that. It needs to be a point, a counterpoint, and move on and move forward with it. I, those are the things that, uh, other than doing a game, other than doing a live event, which is to me the most fun and the most gratifying art form of what we do, I think, you know, having engaged debate, not, Im not the embrace debate, yelling and screaming, seeing who can be the loudest, seeing who can make the greater point, regardless of what side of the topic that you're on, uh, is something that always uh, captured my imagination. I think today, if people follow me on Twitter, if they follow me on Instagram, particularly on Twitter, I will 
definitely engage people in, in ways that other people in my profession don't. And I think the reason for that is that's who I am. You know, uh, if I, if I give an observation and people ultimately don't like it, or they try to, they try to take what I've said and twist it in some sort of deranged direction that is, uh, not in keeping with my point, I'll shout those people down and I'll, I'll let them know that, no, that's wrong. And if you want to have a civilized debate, that's, that's not a problem. I'll gladly go back and forth with anybody. I don't care how many followers they have. That's the way that I express, I think, that side of who I am in today's media. More than likely, it's the social end of uh, my social media area where that comes out. When you're calling a game, it has nothing to do with your opinion. It has everything to do with the when, where, why, and what of what's going on in the game. That's a completely different approach. And, uh, and frankly, Logan, I'm glad I no longer do uh, that kind of radio or that kind of TV and radio. Um, the guys that do it work hard at it. Uh, the ones that are really good make a lot of money at it. But it's not something that I necessarily want to be remembered for. I just do believe that if you in- inject a little bit of opinion based on knowledge, it engages people and is memorable in a manner that fans really appreciate. Not much of it, not, not much of that goes on. The really good play-by-play people know and have the right judgment in how to inject a strong point, maybe tilted editorially to some extent, but they never let it supersede what's the most important, and that is the game, the players, and the coaches uh, that you're covering. It seems to be we're going to crunch this a little bit because your first job out of college was at uh, K-Rock in Shreveport where you were a DJ. I'm imagining did some play-by-play as well. But what I really want to focus on well, I is... I was in school. I was in school during okay. that period. First job really out of, my first My first job really out of college that I needed to keep and hold on to uh, was in radio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And that's and, what I was uh, going to say. That seems like that was your big break that led to uh, getting to do LSU Tigers basketball. Yes, yes. Yeah, that, that, that break along with... Uh, the local CBS affiliate, Channel 9, WAFB-TV, which was the last local job I had. Uh, I was there in Baton Rouge in New Orleans between 1979 and 1986. And I started uh, freelancing, actually, with ESPN in 1985. This was while I was still working at the CBS affiliate. Job opportunity at a local 10,000-watt uh, AM radio station that allowed me to have the first-ever sports talk show in Baton Rouge history. And I made my my bones there. I, um, I got to know and, and, and really worked hard to get to know all of the coaches on the campus at LSU and through having the first ever talk show. And by the way, I took the initiative with my station owner and station manager. I said, if you give me an hour long talk show every night, I'll do three hours of spinning whatever records you want me to do during the day. Uh, and I'll go out and sell it myself. I'll go out and get the advertisers myself. And I did. And then I went and, and, and made, made myself important uh, in LSU circles in 1979. And when the head coach of football and the head coach of basketball at that time, especially Dale Brown, uh, was impressed and helped to the, the extent that they could, uh, it gave me carte blanche in the LSU system. So all of the coaches wanted to come and be a part of what I was doing. And by 1981, uh, I was hosting Dale's coaches show. They went to the final four. I went to my first final four. 
1982, a station in New Orleans was hiring me away. Uh, in 82, of course, the Final Four was in New Orleans when Michael Jordan hit the shot. Now Tiger Vision starts in that 81-82 season. Uh, I got the play-by-play job then, and I had tapes to send out. And those tapes got me opportunities to do the Metro Conference back in the days of Memphis State and Louisville, uh, Virginia Tech, Florida State, all those teams were playing. And, and I was also doing my first uh, ACC games and my first SEC games uh, in syndication back then. And then ESPN hired me to do a basketball game January 5th of 1985. And as they say, that's where I really took off. And by 1986, November of 86, we were making plans to move to Connecticut. And I went full-time doing Sports Center as well as the original college game day all within that period of time uh, between 1985 and, uh, and January 1st of 1987. It was a uh, Everything was moving pretty fast back at, back at that time in my career. and uh, But it started with, with just grinding and outworking people uh, and, and making myself relevant to everyone that mattered because um, I had gotten married. I knew that it was time to get serious about my career. If I wanted it, I had to go out and get it. Talent alone was not going to be enough. I had to outwork people as well. And that's what I started doing around 1979, 1980, uh, and it paid uh, huge dividends for me. You said you were the first sports talk show in Baton Rouge, and at that time you couldn't just pull up on your phone the TuneIn app and listen to somebody else's show. How did you learn how to format and structure a talk show without really being able to listen to one before that? How did you build your own unique format? Well, I- yeah, I, I just I just put together an outline of what I thought the news of the day was, and I tried to deal with it in segments. I tried really uh, hard to have both uh, caller involvement as well as uh, heavy-duty uh, guest involvement. Usually, if you had a great guest who said some profound things, it would uh, instigate calls. Radio's changed a lot through the years since that time, obviously, but uh, I love the idea of... Uh, of dialogue over monologue. I would give an opening monologue that would last about three or four minutes, go to my guest. And then after the guest, boom, be interactive. A lot of people today won't do that. You know, most, most national shows don't take calls at all. My friend, Paul Feinbaum, uh, it goes the drastically the other direction. I, I was never caller driven. I, I did want to have callers involved. I wanted them to believe that if they had something to add, then that, that they were welcomed. But if they didn't have anything, anything to add, then you're wasting my time. We need to press press on, press forward. That was my, my, my approach to it. Just give us a little bit of a window into what it was like in the early years at ESPN. Because you said you started in there in 1985 or 1986. I think it was like yeah, two years well, old at that point. Games, uh, I had a full year of going around calling USFL football, PKA karate, boxing, you name it, I called it. You know, I was like Mikey in the cereal commercial. Whatever the big-time announcers wouldn't do, I'd, I'd do anything. You know, <laughs> did a lot of college baseball, college World Series, college basketball. Uh, as I said, USFL, which was uh, in vogue at that time, just to get opportunities. But in 86, when they were asking me to come up, I had done the sidelines on our big CFA Saturday football package, and they were a year away from starting game day. When I came to Bristol, it was to – do Sports Center with John Saunders, God rest his soul, and to do 
game day, which was going to start in the fall of 87, college game day. Those were going to be my main gigs to go along with calling college basketball games. Uh, there had been an ownership change and a leadership change there, and I was part of it. Again, was very fortunate from a timing standpoint where that's concerned. <laughs> there were only 10 anchors that, that were living in, in the Bristol area back then. Everyone remembers Bob Lee, Chris Berman, Tom Mees, uh, George Grand. Not everybody remembers Lou Palmer. Not everybody remembers uh, Sharon Smith. More people should remember Gail Gardner who was the first really strong anchor, female anchor in the history, I think, of, uh, of ESPN and sports in general, frankly. They were all there at that time. There were a couple of guys, uh, Alan Massengale, who's fighting cancer now. And if you ever see me on Twitter replying to the Jakester, that's, that, that was Alan. And Larry Burnett was another one. There were only 10 of us at that time uh, that were living and working in Bristol. And so we all knew one another really well. Another young lady that was the first female to work on college game day. I guess you'd call her maybe the first blonde bombshell in the history of sports TV <laughs> named Carrie Ross. She went on to marry Dave Dombrowski, a former uh, general manager of the Red Sox and uh, Tigers uh, and Marlins. Carrie was, uh, was just out of school at Oklahoma and really young. And she had come in, she worked with Bino Cook and Lee Corso and myself. So there are only 10 of us and uh, everyone had to get along and we did, but, this was before political correctness came in. This was before 1991 when some, some things were happening in our world and our culture that changed the approach that everyone had to have in the workplace. You know, in those days, there was no human resources department. Think about that. Uh, that came along a little later in the 90s as, uh, as companies grew and, and times changed. We all had our own little corner, our own little niche. Sharon Smith was big into horse racing. Herman was, you know, Mr. NFL. I was Mr. College Football. John Saunders was Mr. NHL, Mr. Stanley Cup. You know, we all had our little uh, niche that we we coveted, but we all had to do our level of Sports Center shows. And there weren't as many of them in those days. It was around the clock as it is now, but it was meat and potatoes time. You know, John and I used to do the seven o'clock Sports Center. Berman and uh, Gail Gardner did the uh, eleven you know, during the week. And then on the weekends, uh, everybody kind of went off into their world doing what they had to do. And there were people covering the weekend, but it was a much smaller shop. Uh, and as a result, I think everyone knew they had to get along and we did, we rooted for each other. I, I tell people all the time. And I, I really think this, uh, the glory days of, uh, of sports center really started when, uh, Oberman and Patrick got there and they took sports center to a completely different level. In those days, we were all doing sports center, as a stepping stone to something else. None of us really wanted to do Sports Center, with the possible exception of Berman, who made his name and became Sports Center's first true superstar. He he loved Sports Center in a way that I don't think anyone else did. Uh, and that proved to be the case over the long haul. But all of us sort of viewed the time we spent at ESPN then as a stepping stone to the big leagues. You know, ESPN was only in 20, 25 million homes. It was like being in a triple-A farm system of a major clubhouse, so to speak. It wasn't considered the big leagues that it's considered today. We were, we were trying to get to NBC, CBS, or ABC back then. And obviously, that, that switch has been flipped of those that were visionaries that worked at ESPN at that time. I valued it. I think it was certainly better than a local job, and it was clear that we were doing some very special things that would give us greater opportunities to make uh, our marks at the network level later. 
But at that time, living in that moment, I think we were all having a lot of fun, all felt like we were doing some really creative things, but that none of us were in the big leagues. So no one had a big head. We were just happy to be doing what we were doing, working hard, playing hard, and we did play hard. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we played hard. And as a result, some changes had to be made uh, in the way business was done there. And uh, But still, it was, uh, I think, the glory days of, uh, not only college basketball, uh, but for me to be a part of college basketball at ESPN in the 80s and uh, and have some history with uh, with SportsCenter as a large news gathering arm for all sports fans was uh, it was a wonderful ride. It was uh, it was great to be there for the time that I was there. I read the book. Those guys have all the fun. And I didn't think about it until just now because I own it. I should have reread it before this, but it sounded like. As you alluded to, a lot of fun stories involving that play hard. Can you give us one or two of those? Well, I, I'll, I'll say this. I was glad when, I, when that book came out, I went uh, to the index to see how often I was mentioned. I frankly didn't want to be mentioned very often. And I was only mentioned a couple of times by Dino Cook, so I was happy. <laughs> Jim Miller, who wrote the book, did a marvelous job on it. I was around for some of that, not all of it, just my period. And, and frankly, uh, my understanding of some of what was in the book, a lot of uh, fictitious names had to be used for legal purposes as it resulted to, uh, from some of the things that went on, some of the escapades. But uh, I thought it was a fair assessment overall across the board. And as I said, I was happy that, um, uh, that my name was only mentioned a couple of times in a, uh, a fun way with, with the great Dino Cook. People will have to wait until your book comes out to get the uh, the real stories. But well, I'll say this. I'll, I'll say this, and I, I mean this sincerely. Uh, when I do write the book, and it's and it is out, the the only person that's ever gotten in my way is me. Our business is tough. The the, the fun part is actually the, the calling the games. When the red light comes on, I'm always on. I'm Brando. I think that's going to be what I titled the book. But it's when the light goes off and the cameras uh, come down, that's when the business really gets tough. And I think, Logan, that's where a lot of mistakes can be made. And I made my fair share of them. Along the way, I think there can be uh, a blueprint for young people coming up to know the how-tos and the how-not-tos, as I like to call them, of being successful in our profession. Uh, A lot of us that are in this business are outgoing. We're type A's. We go, 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 and we're not sure where the boundaries are. I think that's one of the the quests that I'll have when I put together the book. You need to know your boundaries. Not necessarily stay in your lane. Uh, You know, you want to shake that up a little bit, rattle some change. But you do want to know where those boundaries are. And there's no way, there's no manual to find to tell you where they are. You just have to feel them. You have to know them. Uh, Hopefully I can point some of those out. After that, you ended up in the mid-90s. You joined Turner for a little while, uh, doing stuff for them, and then eventually ended up at CBS in 1996, which uh, I think is kind of where your star really rose before moving on to Fox. And let's just start with getting to CBS first. What were the series of events that led to you moving on from ESPN to Turner to CBS? Well... When I left uh, Connecticut and moved home, I got a four-year contract. These were decisions that I made. I had a family decision to make. I wanted to stay at ESPN, but I didn't want to live in Connecticut any longer. 
being married and having my children, having, having a family, having a full life, uh, mattered to me. And my wife was not going to be happy. She's a Southern girl. She's from my hometown. And she desperately wanted to get back home near her mom, who wasn't doing well physically. And so uh, I took it upon myself to get us home. Uh, that became a priority. And I'm very uh, obliged to ESPN for allowing me the opportunity. Uh, that was the goal always for me, was to get to play-by-play, play, not to, to do studio. But the real truth is my studio is what allowed my star to rise at ESPN. So when I left Connecticut, I was a, no longer of as, uh, the value to them as I was before. And I had to come to grips with that. And, and by 1992, uh, I really knew uh, that the, the end was near. You can always tell when the, when, the, when the games are not maybe as marquee as they once were. Uh, there's just a feel that you get. So I started preparing myself for an exit. Uh, and Don McGuire and the people at Turner were interested in my coming on board to do some NBA for them. Uh, Sports South, which at that time was not owned by Fox, it was owned by, by Turner, Turner Sports South, uh, had a job opening for uh, the play-by-play position for the Atlanta Hawks uh, and for the 40 or 50 games that the Atlanta Braves had. And I was available to do that, and I had a choice to make. Uh, a major station in Dallas, Texas, was interested in my coming to work there to do the Jerry Jones show, Cowboys preseason games and the like. And frankly, that was a bigger job that paid more money. Uh, but I, I had to look at myself in the mirror and determine what, what would be the better choice. Uh, and my wife helped me with that. She said, you know, if you're working in a newsroom, you're three minutes of sports and you're going to be doing highlights of the game that you wish you were calling, how's that going to feel? So I actually took a job for less money to do the Hawks and the Braves and some NBA games in the mid-90s. Greatest decision I ever made, probably, because by doing those games, not only did I get a World Series ring with the Braves in 95, but I got to be a part of the NBA and Major League Baseball uh, and during my time at ESPN, I'd not really done much of that. I'd done a little Major League Baseball, but, but certainly not the NBA. Through all of that work, plus I was doing SEC football uh, in the fall for Jefferson Pilot, which was uh, a division of Raycom Sports, which was part of my career for 34 years. So I was doing my college football at that time, too. And it just so happened that um, the Olympics in 96 were being held. Uh, there were opportunities my way as a result of that uh the guy that ran the local uh atlanta organizing committee the tv version of it was going to be hired at cbs as its its executive producer a man by the name of uh, terry ewart and terry had been at nbc for a number of years with sean mcmanus and sean mcmanus was just taking over at cbs and they needed they didn't have the nfl in those days didn't have a lot of uh, announcers they had been hit hard by fox in 1994 when the NFC went to them. So they needed some additional talent, and uh, I got my chance to do my first NCAA tournament in 1996. This was while I was working at Turner uh, and at Sports South. Uh, the tournament went really well for me, and uh, they came back to me the following year, wanted me to do the tournament again, and for whatever reason, the Atlanta Hawks and Turner was not uh, as cooperative in wanting me to do that, and I had another decision to make to stay with the Hawks, uh, do some NBA regular seasons that really didn't, uh, games that didn't matter, or go do the NCAA tournament at the risk of losing my, my day job, so to speak. Well, I believed in me. I'd been given reason by both Terry Ewart and Sean McManus that 
more opportunities were going to come my way once they got the NFL back, which they did in 1998. So in 97, I, I continued to do the games up until the time the tournament hit. After the tournament hit, I left Turner and uh, at that point started doing uh, some CBS games some college football games in 97 and a lot of college basketball regular season games. Plus they were getting the Olympics, which enabled me to do some games when Jim Nance was gone. When the NFL came to CBS again in 1998, Jim, who had been doing uh, the college football today, moved to the NFL show and they needed a host. Well, that, that hosting job yet again, taking me away from play by play, but putting me in a highly visible studio position for the SEC in the regular season uh, and for all of its college football, which included the Big East back in those days. Big East was uh, a football property back then. Uh, that created an opportunity, which I held for 18 years. So, um, it's, I mean, if I hadn't gone to Atlanta, uh, and then I would have never gotten the CBS job. One hand washes the other, and one, one critical decision ultimately means another opportunity may come your way. So that's, again, the lesson learned there. I've talked with a few different broadcasters about this who have been part of NCAA and conference tournament broadcasts, and I was just part of one um, last week that I was talking about where it was 13 games in three days, and you do as much prep in advance as you can, but I just wanted to see what is your prep like when you're getting ready to do tournaments where you don't necessarily know who's going to be playing until very short notice leading up to the game? It is the hardest and most difficult undertaking in sports play-by-play broadcasting. And I say that having done 26 different sports and having gone in to do hockey at a time uh, in 1985 when I didn't know, you know, offsides from icing. Okay. I mean, (laughs) you, you have to learn the glossary of a sport and plus, uh, be able to understand uh, a line change and know the players and, and, and really, you know, be able to pick up on that aspect of it. That was a challenge for me years earlier, but calling four games in one day, eight teams practice time the day before those eight teams go out, out, out there, you're, you're talking to their SIDs, trying to get as many stories as you can. Uh, the rotation, who of the 12 players, 15 players they have, are they really going to play? and maybe some unique storylines to go with it. Uh, you really have to uh, compartmentalize a lot of your homework. A lot of what you're getting, by the way, hits the editing room floor. It never makes the air because those teams get knocked out. It's just a 40-minute game. You may have never had time to tell that story. But I think just loving the game and understanding the game is a lot of it. But at the same time, I think that your judgment, your editorial judgment, is, is really going to be challenged. And that's true for everyone involved. My love of doing what I do is the preparation. I don't think of preparation as work. I think of it as fun. And again, that goes back to my childhood. You know, as a kid, uh, I was getting the sporting news every week. I was following players. I knew their stats. I knew their stories. And uh, so in a lot of ways, it takes me back to my childhood when I'm doing preparation. So, But I will tell you, that is without question among anyone that's ever done play-by-play of any kind at any level in any sport the most challenging aspect of, of, of being a play-by-play man is being a part of any one of the eight teams that are out there calling games during March Madness. You stuck with CBS, as you mentioned, I think you said for 18 years. 
Eventually, it was time to move on. You joined Fox in 2014. But from what I read, it was not necessarily a happy, mutually agreeable experience, you moving on. What happened there that you feel comfortable talking about? I'm not trying to get you or anything, but what was it and what was the the eventual decision to choose Fox? It was actually a... It was actually a wonderful parting uh, from CBS. It was abrupt. I wish it hadn't been so abrupt. It happens sometimes in this business. It just does. And in my case, it had really nothing to do with working games or directors or for my big boss at CBS, uh, Sean McManus. Everything went really smoothly during my exit. But the abrupt change, again, was brought about in some measure because of um, some judgmental error that I made. And it was an off-air uh, error, something that I'll write about later on, but it's one of those things that can happen. Uh, upon its happening, uh, I will tell you very frankly that ultimately I had to face were not something that I really, <laughs> I really thought about very much. I didn't think that judgmental error I was making was that big of a deal. You know, you just sometimes don't know. This is when, you know, I've been in this business by, at this point, uh, gosh, over 30 years. So, you know, mistakes can be made whether you're 28 or 58. You know, it can happen. Uh, but, I, but I'll tell you that in, the, in, some, in some ways, it probably was the best thing that it did because I had really gotten, I think, um, I had lost sight of what was really important and I, and I should frankly tell people that this is something, Logan, I think all of us in a competitive field like broadcasting need to understand because it's a job that's coveted by many and had by few. When you've done it for as long as I've done it, and we talked about it earlier going all the way back to age 14, you can start thinking that uh, this isn't a privilege. This is just uh, what you do. This is what you're supposed to do. Uh, this isn't just uh, an honor and a privilege. This is just, well, this is what I do. Well, it's always an honor. It's always a privilege. And I think we all need to understand that we're all replaceable. I was chasing uh, some things and chasing some aspects of my career that I didn't need to be chasing. I should have just been a little bit more, I think, at ease with where I was in my career. But again, when you're trying to squeeze out the most of your career, you can sometimes make mistakes. And to CBS is. uh, uh, credit. They were very good about uh, supporting the narrative about my exit that I felt was necessary with regard to my future. So, um, and going to Fox is the greatest thing ever happened in my life professionally. I've never been happier, never been more honored. And I'm also at a time in my career where I've never been more grateful. I had been in the studio for a long, long time at CBS and I really wanted to get out and do games. And I did a few games in football both the NFL and some SEC games. But, you know, I really wanted to be out there doing it every week. And God bless Vern, he was doing it, and he was doing it for a long time and was showing no signs of slowing down when I left. Ultimately, getting to Fox and sort of playing the role, if you will, of uh, their veteran guy, their guy that's been at it for a long time and is now uh, in his 60s, uh, that's that's my place in, in the business right now. And I'm very comfortable in it. I've never been happier. Uh, they are, without question, the easiest, I say easiest, the most uh, enjoyable um, people I've ever worked for. They, 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 they hire people that they trust, and they enable 
those people they trust to do their jobs to the best of their ability. You know, that, that move, it was abrupt. Uh, and that part of it was unfortunate, but I think everything else about it, as I look back on it, Logan was, uh, probably, it was probably there for a reason. And, you know, God was really good to me. <laughs> I've been very, very fortunate and very, very blessed in every aspect of my life. Never more so than when Fox inked me to a contract and, and now to think that we're six years into this, I've completed my six years, so pretty amazing. Tell us about your audition for Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> well, you had to go there, huh? Of course. <laughs> All right. Well, um, that was uh, that was one that just flew out, just landed in my lap that I had no idea. I mean, I, I think there was part of me that always thought if the sports casting thing didn't work out, what would I be good at? And I always thought I'd be a pretty good game show host because, um, you know, I was, I was in the entertainment end of the business as a child, uh, talking to people and engaging people has always been a strength. And, um, uh, my agent at the time called me and said, uh, Pat Sajak's going to have his own talk show on CBS. And as a result, he can't do the NBC daily show. Uh, they want to fly you out to Burbank, they being Merv Griffin. So they flew me out there. And when they fly you out, you're not just part of a cattle call, you know, out in L.A. You kind of feel like, well, they're taking you pretty seriously. Maybe you should take this pretty seriously. So I went out and watched Sajak do about three shows uh, on a taping day. And uh, a lot of the guys that were on the set, uh, the workers, camera guys, videotape guys, stage managers and whatnot, they were like, they knew me uh, from, from the work I'd done on ESPN. So... I felt really comfortable. I went out and did it in one take and you can see it on YouTube. It's out there. It's, it's out there for people to see. Uh, if you so desire in the end, I thought I had the job. I mean, I really did. The people at ESPN, by the way, were very supportive, perhaps doing the number one game show, uh, in America. That would have been kind of a big deal for them too. And I would not have had to have given up any of my job at, uh, at ESPN at the time, because the way they taped wheel of fortune, it might've changed some of the, responsibilities, but I could have remained uh, at ESPN. So I thought I had it. I mean, I really did. About a week or so goes by, and it turns out Ralph Benerska gets the job, the former San Diego Chargers kicker that had never done television in his life. That's that's showbiz. <laughs> you know, it can happen. The show only lasted about another two months and was canceled, and Ralph's uh, short-lived uh, hosting job went away. But the experience of doing it, and uh, being in a completely different uh, surroundings, doing something completely foreign to me as a broadcaster, no one in my ear and working with cue cards and uh, having to remind myself of, uh, you know, spinning the wheel and say the top down value on the wheel is 750. Do not, um, do not, um, do not hit bankrupt because if you do, you lose your cash, but not your merchandise. Now here's the puzzle. See, I still got it down. <laughs> uh, that was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. And uh, even though even though I didn't get the job, they the producers, Louis, uh, Leo Schwartz, I think was his name, called me back out to do a couple of other what they call pilots for shows. One was actually a show that did go on television for a number of years. And I didn't do I did the pilot, but I didn't do the show. The show was called Grudge Match. Steve Alp did it. It was sort of a it was sort of a um, combination of uh people's court meets the wwe <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And uh, it was pretty wild. I did the show with Lyle Alzado, the late Lyle Alzado, and Jesse the Body Ventura. <laughs> uh, and it was the number one show at NACTA that year. But I looked at my wife after looking at the show, and I said, you know, you've got to draw the line somewhere. I don't think I could do this. So I chose not to do it. And Steve Albert, Marv's brother, uh, actually did that show. It had a two-year run, I think. They did 26 shows, so uh, the show was successful. But the Wheel of Fortune thing, I think, is probably – I got more ink uh, for the job I didn't get, and it's had more staying power than any other aspect of my career. <laughs> <laughs> so for my last couple of questions, I ask every broadcaster that comes on the show this. And the first one is I want to share, I, I ask for everybody to share what I call broadcast horror stories. And when I say that, I don't mean like actually stepping around bodies, a actual horrific story, but just like equipment going wrong or having a horrible vantage point or just having something really weird happen during a broadcast that you hated at the moment, but you can laugh about now. Well, this is, this is an easy one for me. Uh, uh, the one real key element, and the first game we did was in my hometown. Neville was playing Captain Shreve High School, which, uh, which ironically is where my two daughters each graduated from later on in life. Uh, Neville was playing a road game in my hometown. So we're going up to the high school stadium, Captain Shreve Stadium, and I was really concerned about um, calling my father something other than dad. You know, on the air, I mean, it's one thing to have. We knew nepotism was at work already, right? I mean, you know, I'm clearly his son. But I didn't want to call him dad on the air. But I'd never not called him dad. You know, I'd never called him by his first name. So I, I'm, I'm like, it was a big deal. I'm, I'm bothered by it. So we're about to pull in, and my dad says, son, you all right? And I said, well, dad, I, I need to talk to you. And he says, what is it? I said, well, you know, I'm a little... I don't want to sound, you know, arrogant, but, um, and I know everybody knows I'm your son the moment we come on the air, but I mean, I, I can't call you dad on the air. And he said, Oh no, no, I was going to tell you that anyway. And I said, uh, well, good. So, so, uh, I got a little energetic in the midst of the call. My dad, there was a big play. And I got a, I, I guess maybe I became a 14 year old for just a second. And I said, Did you see that, Dad? And immediately he hit me with a football. And I said, I'm sorry, huh? Huh? <laughs> so that was an embarrassing moment right out of the gates, you know. First show, get it out of the way. And uh, that, one, that one is always my, my quick first response to that kind of question. Who are your favorite broadcasters to watch or listen to on a day off, both maybe nationwide and maybe an under-the-radar person in uh, the Louisiana area that you know about that someone like me in Minnesota might not? Well, there are some excellent uh, guys with big-time chops out there uh, broadcasting today, young guys coming. And I'm, I'm happy to say that a lot of them I've um, – I wouldn't say I've uh, mentored, I've certainly advised and tried to offer a helping hand at some point in time because maybe they're, you know, cutting their teeth and maybe in some cases they're so good, they're getting so many opportunities that they're getting a little tired. You know, they may, they may want to say, well, how do I go about getting a little bit of a break? Because they're working me a lot. When you're young, it's hard to say no. You know, it's, uh, you're pretty much saying yes to everything. 
there are some really outstanding young talents out there. Several of them are at Fox and several are, are at ESPN. I think a lot of Joe Davis, uh, who does the Dodgers now, and I mean, to replace Ben Scully, and you're in your late 20s when you do it, that's, you know, you got to be pretty doggone good. And you've got to understand how to be both respectful of the guy that preceded you, but at the same time, carry yourself with a lot of confidence. And, and Joe does that uh, in a very large way. I'm a big fan of Adam Amin over on ESPN. I think he is top of the line. And I got to meet him in his very formative years when I was doing the NCAA Division II National Championship. Adam was probably in the middle of working for five or six different uh, operations and taking job after job. And he was doing some of the um, games leading up to the championship, if memory serves me correctly. And I met him there and we talked and I knew his career would skyrocket and, and it has. So those are a couple of really young guys at both of those places that um, stick out to me. I'm, a, I'm also a big fan of, of Kevin Burkhart, both as a studio as well as play-by-play guy. Not many guys can do both with ease and eloquence and, and Kevin is capable of doing that. And so, uh, that's another one that, that jumps out for me locally in my, in my part of the world. Uh, there's a young man that I've been, it's been by my side, helped me with my show when it was on and he's doing Northwestern state university games. Uh, the demons, Patrick Netherton is his name. And I've known him since he came out of college at Washita Baptist and he's still out there grinding, you know, and the older you get, the more difficult it is because so many of these kids are coming right out of school and are available and uh, are more, more upwardly mobile in the minds of some. Uh, and I think a lot of times, Logan, it's easier for guys in their 20s to get jobs than guys that have been out there busting their chops, really earning their bones, and they've been at it now 15 or so years in their late 30s and early 40s. So Patrick Netherton is worthy of a big-time play-by-play job somewhere. And I sincerely hope one day he gets that, whether it's at a state school here or somewhere else. He should be a voice of a major program in, in college athletics. I have immense respect for, I think, the best of uh, maybe two generations. Uh, the generation that preceded me and the best of the generation now in terms of all sports, just overall, and being the best at what he does. And I think probably the best of my generation uh, guys that started about the same time I did. I don't think anyone can offer a greater blueprint for the way to call a ball game, be it college football, college basketball, baseball, you name it. I've told a number of young students on Skypes with different professors at universities uh, when they've asked me to be a guest that uh, if you're just looking at the craft itself of calling a ball game, there is absolutely nothing that's not exactly right about the way Sean McDonough goes about the task of calling a ball game. Sean's a dear friend. Uh, we are peers. Uh, we're contemporaries. But I don't think anyone is as good at telling the story, offering some very strong, at times, opinions to his telecast, but at the same time keeping the when, where, why, and what at the forefront of what he's doing. So those are the names that jump out. And of, of those that are in my category that have been at it as, as baby boomers, I, uh, Sean's the guy that jumps out for me. 
All right, Tim. Well, we have gone over the time that I said I would uh, take, so I really appreciate your time, and thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast, Tim Brando of Fox Sports. You got it, Logan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. Apple podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated. And let's face it, you don't have anything better to do right now. You're stuck at home. You can give me an Apple podcast review. Finally, please reach out to the guests that are kind enough to give up their time and come on this show. Let them know you appreciate them sharing their stories and their wisdom in the broadcast industry. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more whenever that is. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks for listening.